Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, welcome to the program. This is The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy in Los Angeles, and it is Friday, so it is time for another flashback episode. Today, I'm going to be digging into the archives and sharing with you an outtake from episode 257, my conversation with author Natalie Bazil. It uh, first aired on March 5th, 2014. Natalie Bazil is the author of the novel Queen Sugar, which was named one of the San Francisco Chronicle's best books of 2014 and was nominated for an NAACP Image Award. Queen Sugar was later adapted for television by the Oprah Winfrey Network and director Ava DuVernay to considerable acclaim. Natalie Bazil is also the author of a work of nonfiction and anthology entitled We Are Each Other's Harvest, celebrating African-American farmers, land, and legacy. So my outtake from episode 257 and my conversation with Natalie Bazil is coming up momentarily. A quick reminder before we begin to please sign up for my weekly newsletter. I would love it if you did so. Just go over to otherppl.com or bradlisty.com and sign up. The newsletter goes out once a week. I let you know about the latest episodes of the show. I also share links to things that I've been reading and finding interesting. So sign up if that sounds good. You can also join the Other People Patreon community over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Help keep the show going. Get yourself some merchandise. And I think that's it. Oh, a book club subscription. There's all sorts of stuff over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Today's episode is brought to you by Abrams Books, publisher of Idlewild, the darkly funny debut novel by James Frankie Thomas. It is set at a Quaker high school in Lower Manhattan. Idlewild is a campus novel. It's a book about a complicated relationship, and it takes a very fresh angle on queer and trans identity. Idlewild is the official September pick of the Other People Book Club. You can sign up, by the way, over at otherppl.com if you want to join the book club. Idlewild nails the heartbreak of being a theater kid and the humiliation of growing up. That's Idlewild, the debut novel by James Frankie Thomas, available now everywhere books are sold from Abrams Books. All right, so let's get to today's flashback. 
to episode 257, my conversation with Natalie Bazil, author of the novel Queen Sugar. This episode first aired on March 5th, 2014. A reminder that the full episode is available in the feed. All episodes of this program are available to listeners. They are in the feed. So if you like what you hear in this flashback and you want to go in for the full conversation, just look for episode 257. Have at it. All right? So here we go. Let's do it. Today's flashback, my conversation with Natalie Bazil. I went to school. I went to Berkeley. And I was an English major and loved it. And actually had a a professor, Charles Muscatine, whose uh, writing class I took. And I loved it. And I knew that that's what I wanted to do. But frankly, I was just too afraid. And so I graduated from Cal in 88 and went back to Los Angeles. And for 11 years, worked in my a business that my dad had started selling aluminum to the aerospace and aircraft industry. And when I tell you it was soul killing, (laughs) I I cannot even describe how unhappy I was, but I stuck around for 11 years and I would come home in the evenings and I would write, Uh, I would write on the weekends, you know, do that whole thing, but I just couldn't muster the courage. And so I remember sitting at my desk, flipping through my desk calendar because I was in sales, right? And I was flipping through this calendar, and all of a sudden I realized, holy shit, I've been here for 11 years. And on one hand, those 11 years had just dragged. But on the other hand, they had flown by. And I realized, you know, if I don't do something soon, I'm going to look up and another 11 years will have passed. My dad will be ready to retire. He'll be thinking about that. And he'll look to me to take on this business and I'll do it, but I'll hate myself for it. And one day I will wake up and I won't care. And I thought, you know, I can't do that to him and I can't do that to myself. So I quit. And, uh, so how did that you know, moment go? How did that moment go where you tell you, cause I know like a lot of times parents, especially parents who have built up a business that, you know, there's the natural impulse to want to like pass it on, you know? Oh yeah. So did, oh, yeah. was that a, a, a dicey conversation when you finally broke it, the news to him? Well, you know, I'll, I'll tell you this. I actually had that conversation twice. I had that conversation once in like 1990 to 1992 when I went into my dad's office and said, you know, dad, I'm really not happy. I I really want to be a writer. I'm going to go back to grad school in English. And his response was, why why would you go back in English? Why not go back and get an an MBA? And I said, because that's really what I, I don't want an MBA. I don't want to be in business. So I actually went back the first time and got a master's in Afro-American studies with a concentration in literature, thinking that I was going to go on and get a PhD and, you know, be an academic. But my mother lured me back. I don't blame her, but, you know, she, like, raised my salary just enough for me to want to stay. And besides, I chickened out. Right. So I stayed again until I was so miserable. (laughs) We all were so miserable. I admit, you know... I just wasn't happy there. And I'm sure I was, you know, not a pleasant person to work with. And so when I finally flipped through that desk calendar that day and realized it had been, you know, 11 years and I wasn't doing what I wanted to do, that's when I just went into my dad's office and said, you know, I, I just can't do this anymore. And by that time, Brett, I think he was ready to see me go. Yeah. You know, 
he he was ready. He understood that I, you know, had tried to do this thing and wasn't happy. And, you know, he released me and I released myself and that was it. So, you know, it, it, it took two dips, two bites at the apple before I could actually say, I can't do it. Well, and it's not and like, it's not like you didn't give it a fair shot. I mean, 11 years, you know, you know that's, like, that's, a good, that's kind of what I figured. That's a good sample. So, I mean, yeah. but at least he was, I mean, so the, the relationship is good with your folks like that. That didn't like rupture anything. They understood to a degree. They understood. Yeah. By the time I left, they understood and they were happy for me, you right. know? Hey everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. And you're from LA? Originally from LA, yeah. Okay, what part? I mean, I live down here, so where were you? Well, then then you know. Originally, I'm from Palos Verdes, which, you know, is a suburb of LA, to be technical. But, um, you know, it's funny because, so I lived in, I grew up in Palos Verdes, went to Cal, lived elsewhere for a few years, but then my husband and I moved back to Palos Verdes when our first daughter was born. And I, and I hated it. I hated it because, you know, it was suburban and, you know, there were no, people were lovely and nice and kind and all this, but I needed writers. I needed to be writers. So even though I lived in PV for seven years, from two, from 1996, six or seven until 2003, all of my writing buddies were in LA. And so I lived in Palos Verdes, but I was constantly on the 405 or on the 110, you know, driving into LA to go to workshops or, you know, to have coffee with writing friends and all that. So I kind of straddled the, you know, I, I straddled two lives for a long time. So, okay. So how did you meet these writing friends? I mean, did you have friends that you had grown up with or knew? Um, or were you meeting people online at that point? I mean, I guess late nineties would have been the the dawn of such a thing. Yeah. You know, okay. So in 1999, I went to Breadloaf for the first time Okay. and just as a contributor. And on the last day I was there, I met uh, some people who had been telling me, Oh, you've got to meet this woman, Dylan Landis. She's another writer. And we met literally in the last 30 minutes before we both headed back home she and her husband were moving to LA from New York and I was already in LA. So we exchanged email and for, you know, contact information real fast. And when she moved, you know, three weeks later, we met for coffee and Dylan and I started going to Jim Caruso's 
writing workshop at Santa Monica College. Sure, yeah. You know that. And yeah. and that just opened up a whole new world of, you know, of writers. And so from that moment on, I started going to Jim's workshop every week and, you know, I met other writers, Mary Otis, and um, just some fabulous people who were all there in L.A. Because, you know, Jim's workshop is kind of, you know, it's mecca, a, it's right? An, it's an institution. It is. It is. And and so that's how I kind of, you know, met all of my writer friends. It was at Jim's workshop. Okay. So, and yeah. was this UCLA time or was this post-UCLA? This was... Um, this was 2000, so it was after UCLA. So you had your master's. I had my master's, yeah. And, I, you know, I was friends with, you know, I'd, I'd stayed in touch with, you know, the people who I met in that program, but they were all academics, you know. So um, they were going off and getting their, you know, PhDs and, you know, doing that kind of thing. And I was the one who kind of said, you know, academic life is great but I really want to write the book. So, and, and that's not to knock academia at all, but it just wasn't for me. What, what about it? What about it? Just like you, you just felt like the work that you would have to do to, to be a teacher or, you know, a, a tenured professor would have, would have uh, overshadowed the creative work that you wanted to do or? You know, it was more uh, just a feeling of frustration that writing academic analysis, you know, kind of critiques of other people's critiques of the creative work was not my interest. I wanted to write the books. I didn't want to spend my life. You're like, you I, know, want, I want to be critiqued. I don't want to be critiquing people. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, that's exactly it. You know, I mean, I, I hope that, that that doesn't sound egocentric. It wasn't even about, or egotistical. It wasn't even about, you know, having other people's attention on me. It was just more feeling like, you know, I just want to be able to tell the stories. And that's what, that's what made me think, academia, at least at that point in my life, was not for me. Right. You and, know? and in terms of like making a living, because I mean, I think a lot of people in academia who write fiction or write creative nonfiction or whatever, um, you know, it's, it's sort of the day job. And you're, it's always... A you've got to do it. Yeah, you've got to do it. And, yeah. it's a, and it's a job that, you know, insofar as a day job can, tends to mesh well with a writing life because you have kind of a flexible schedule or whatever. Whereas right. like... You know, the job at the aluminum, aluminum tubing company, probably, <laughs> you're not going to be able to like carve out like a three hour block in the middle of the day to go like muse, you know? So, right. um, so how were you, you know, how were you able to do the work, you know? And then what, like, were you doing anything it, else? Was your husband working? Yeah. Well, you know, my husband is a lawyer, so, you know, to some degree we could afford for me to, you know, write full time. But I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to lie. That was terrifying to me because, you know, I had always, I had grown up kind of, you know, with the expect, expectation that I would, you know, kind of make my own way and, you know, earn my own living. And so to, to have to be dependent upon someone else was really hard. It was really hard and, um, scary. You know, it was, it was, it was, it was scary too. So, but, but also maybe motivating. I mean, I think if you have, cause that's the thing about it is that to be a writer, you know, you read enough literary history and obviously there's a lot of different ways to skin the cat, but yeah. I, I've, you know, you read literary biography and there's almost always, what's the word? A benefactor, right? Is the mm -hmm. benefactor, a benefactor is the person who supports the artist, right? Right. Right. Uh, so whether it's like, you know, somebody married, uh, like the writer married somebody who came from money or the writer mm -hmm. had like, 
some wealthy, you know, widower who decided to f- bankroll them or somebody swooped in at the last minute. Like I'm thinking of Harper Lee. You know, she had mm-hmm. some, some wealthy friends in New York City who for Christmas one year gave her a year to write and just like paid her for Ooh. her life. And that's Holy how cow. that's how she wrote To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, so, I mean, I don't know. I, I always like notice that. And then, you know, for, for every one of those, there are others where it's like they lived in a cardboard box and wrote a masterpiece. <laughs> you know? so, I'm not trying to say that it's always the case, but it's often the case where there's yeah. some good fortune somehow. And, um, yeah. and you have to have that support almost in order to get the work done. And yeah. that can be hard to reconcile for somebody who has that value of like self-reliance. And, yeah. you know, it can be hard to kind of accept that support. Yeah, it, it was. It, it was hard for me. And, and you know, you mentioned motivation. I think it was a huge motivating factor because I felt like, you know, okay, my husband is making certain sacrifices and, you know, believes in this work and I need to make this happen. I need to be at the desk every day. You know, I need to do that in order to demonstrate to him, but also to me, that this was what I had committed to do. And I mean, it was an easy thing for me to do because since I'd spent 11 years doing something I was so unhappy at, at doing, it was a privilege for me to go and, you know, report to the desk every day. But I did want, I did feel an obligation to, you know, put in the time. And to produce. I mean, and to like, and to produce. you know, it's one thing to put in the time, but it's another thing to get like a, a saleable work done. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and what about uh, motherhood? You mentioned that you had a child. Well, yeah, we have two girls. Okay. Um, you know, and, and the funny thing is, you know, when I started this book, my youngest daughter was one and my oldest daughter was four. My oldest daughter is now a freshman in college and my youngest daughter is a sophomore in high school. So that tells you how long it took to... You know, well, see, this, give birth this, to this, thing. this makes me feel better because, like, I'm working so. I have a, I have a three year old, and I'm working mm-hmm. so slowly, and mm-hmm. uh, I'm not trying to blame anyone. I love having my daughter, but it's just like it definitely makes uh, time more oh, difficult because yeah. it's it's the whole thing. You like you need that space. You need kind of you need to have kind of nothing to do. And when you have young exactly. children, you almost never have nothing to do. You know? Exactly, especially in the, uh, wait till you get to the age where your son is, you know, it's, in, a, it's a girl, so. Oh, uh, your daughter. Okay, yeah. is in any any number of, you know, summer day camps where every week, you know, the schedule is different. Oh my god. It Oh, and the birthday parties. I can't do. And the, <laughs> I can there's nothing more dreadful than a child's birthday party. <laughs> My wife and I like Rochambeau last week, and she had to go to Chuck E. Cheese. So I mean, oh like, my god, you just that, deal. It's a, it's a, uh, you know, it's it's part of this age range. And well, you know, the thing about it is that as much as I, um, you know, as much as I'm down on it, my daughter, you mm-hmm. know, kids love birthday parties at this age. Oh, they do. They love it. So oh yeah, I can't be too big of a Scrooge. You got to go and let them sing and eat their cake. So oh yeah. Well, can I just tell you the happiest? Oh, so it's the kitty birthday parties and it's the kitty movies that killed me. And I can remember having to take our kids to um, this movie where the dogs were talking. There were all of these dogs from outer space and they were talking and my husband and I looked at each other and just thought we have hit a new low. (laughs) And, you know, and so every movie after that was measured. I think that movie was called like good boy or something. And so 
the happiest day was the day when we could actually drop our kids off at those bad movies and they were old enough to go in with friends and see them by themselves and we didn't have to sit through those anymore. Right. So you have a little ways to go. I bought them. I think I I hit rock. My personal rock bottom was Disney on ice this past Christmas. (laughs) I've never seen more sad, defeated (laughs) adults in one space in my entire life. Just like parents just slumped over in their seats. You know, Uh, but of course, you know, it's the, the, the kids love it, but, you know, and, and I don't, you know, cause it's, it's hard. Cause I think people listening who don't have children can sometimes do an eye roll because people who have kids tend to talk about that a lot, but it's right. a, it's a real thing that writers yeah. come up against or a lot of writers oh, come yeah. up against because, um, you know, it's, it's bad enough to have a day job or need a day job to support your writing, but then you have kids and you've got to balance that. And, yeah. um, the good news is that people find a way to do it. Uh, That's the, right. the bad news is that it really takes some uh, hustle and maybe oh, yeah. and maybe some um, low grade amphetamines. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, it's like it can be an extraordinary push to get it all yeah. taken care of and taken care of well. So, you know, I'm always curious how people do it, and it's nice to well, hear that it took it just took you a little bit longer than it might have otherwise. Yes, yeah, it did because you know, I mean, m- my feeling was also this: I felt like okay. And and I don't have any, you know, it's not about being the perfect parent. It's not about that. But I did always think to myself, okay, I can always revise this book. I only have one shot with these kids. And so, you know, that was also part of the struggle for me was, you know, battling that internal desire to kind of slip away and, you know, get back to the book, you know, Having to balance that against, okay, well, they really want my full attention for these, you know, 20 minutes. Okay, I can give them that, you know. And it was funny. I was talking to another uh, friend of mine just last week, and he has, uh, I think his son is six, and he just kind of came out with a short story collection a little while ago, and he was saying that, you know, so now all of the publicity stuff is over, and he's home, you know, every day trying to write, but he's the primary, you know, child care person and he was saying that right now he's starting to feel that pull you know of really needing to get back to work and really needing to get back in the stories and so he's trying to hold out you know until summer vacation when he can you know do that so it's a constant struggle it's constant all right everybody there we have it that was natalie bazil my conversation with her in episode 257 It first aired on March 5th, 2014. Natalie Bazil is the author of the novel Queen Sugar and a work of nonfiction entitled We Are Each Other's Harvest. You can find out more at nataliebazil.com. Follow her on social media, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. You can also subscribe to the Other People YouTube channel. Follow the show on social media. TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. If you would like to listen to the full episode with Natalie Bazil, look for episode 257. It's in the feed. Have at it. Don't forget to subscribe to the Other People newsletter, my once-a-week newsletter. It is free. You can do that at otherppl.com or bradlesty.com. You can also join the Other People Patreon community at patreon.com slash other ppl pod help keep this show going into the future if you want to do me a quick favor 
give this show a rating and review it if that is an option wherever you listen it helps the show find new listeners if you want some other people apparel a t-shirt or a sweatshirt head on over to otherppl.com finally i have a novel out my latest novel is called be brief and tell them everything it is available now in trade paperback ebook and audiobook editions so oh and i narrate the audiobook so if you want me to read it to you that is possible again it is called be brief and tell them everything all right so coming up on sunday i will be in conversation with mona awad author of the new novel rouge great conversation with mona excited to share that one with you in just a couple of days so 